0: Behold my servant, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. You know, when it gets down to it, most of us in our heart of hearts have a quarrel with God. When I say we have a quarrel with God, I don't necessarily mean that we are angry at God, although sometimes our quarreling with God does spill over into anger. Martin Luther once said, we are often closest to God when we raise our fist at heaven, because to do that we have to trust God, and God has no children more dear than those who trust. But today, when I say we have a quarrel with God, I mean something broader. We are perplexed and puzzled by the way God is in the world. Or to put it another way, if we were God, if we had God's power and knowledge and presence given the way the world is today, we'd do things differently. You may remember a number of years ago that delightful book, "A Children's Letters to God, and one of the letters was written by a little girl named Norma, and she wrote, Dear God, did you mean for giraffes to look this way, or was that an accident? <laughs> you can see already developing in her young Religious imagination, a quarrel with God. If Norma had created the world, there might not be something so foolish and ridiculous as a giraffe. The prophet Isaiah, in the passage just next to the one that we read this morning, recognizes our quarrel with God, and the prophet says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says your God. The older we get, the quarrel gets deeper. For example, most of us have in our religious imagination a thought about what the world would be like if it were perfect. Ever since Augustine, we have imagined a paradise. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. You eat, but you don't get fat. There's love, but there's not lust. There's will and desire, but there's not conflict. It's perfect. But as theologian John Hick once said, what if this is not God's vision of paradise? What if instead of an endless Caribbean vacation, God's understanding of an ideal world is a world in which souls are made? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. An Atlanta physician once told me that he said, When I get to heaven, if I get to heaven, I'm going to the throne room of God with a cancer cell in my hand, and I'm going to say, why? Why this in your creation? When it gets right down to it, most of us in our heart of hearts have a quarrel with God. And inevitably, what we do with this quarrel is that we begin to imagine an image of God that is more companionable with the way we think God ought to be. We imagine a God who has the same values that we have, who would vote exactly as we would vote, who thinks what we think is right is right and what we think is wrong is wrong. It was interesting in the health care debate to hear all across the spectrum versions of what Rush Limbaugh said when the vote didn't go his way. He said, well, the only thing for us to do now is simply to get rid of the so-and-sos. Well, maybe we imagine a God who would use God's power in such a way as to establish what is right by getting rid of all those who are wrong. The priest friend of S.A.S. Anne Lamott once said, Annie, if God has all the same enemies that you do, your God is probably too small. Or as the prophet Isaiah would put it, my people have become idolaters. They have imagined a vain thing. Instead of us being created in God's image, we begin to create God in our image and bow down before this image. And that is why the prophet comes to us with these beautiful servant songs to reinvigorate our religious imagination with the truth about who God is. And who is God in the servant song? God is one who comes as a judge of the nations. At first, that sounds like good news to the people who first heard this. They had been in Babylonian captivity under the thumb of the nations. And here was God coming as a judge of the nations. But be careful. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. I teach at the seminary at Emory, and one day I was walking across uh, the campus, and one of my students waved to me and said, Professor Long, can I speak with you for a minute? And I said, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Why don't you join me? So she did, and we sat down, and what she wanted to talk about was that her supervising pastor in her field education church was making her preach on Sunday. I said, good. She said, no, it's not good. He's making me preach on the lectionary. I said, good. She said, no, it's, it's not good. Have you read the lections for this week? They're all about judgment. She said, I don't believe in Judgment. I believe in grace and love and hope. It took me three years to get over judgment and therapy. I'm not going to be preaching judgment. We talked about it for a while. And then she changed the subject. She wanted to tell me about the problems that she and her husband were having with their oldest son. He'd been in trouble with the police. He'd been using drugs, maybe dealing them. They never knew where he was. She said, like last night, my husband and I were eating supper. We had no idea where our son was. Suddenly, he opened the back door and came in. He looked at us as if he was about to spit. I said, would you like some dinner? Without a word, he simply stomped down the hall to his room and slammed the door. My husband got up from the table and turned on ESPN. That's always his response, she said. I sat there quivering. I'm physically afraid of my own son. But something got in me, and I walked down the hall to his room, I knocked on his door, I pushed it open, and I said, You listen to me. I love you so much, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I said, Carolyn, I think you just preached a sermon on judgment. The God who comes not with a sword, but who loves us so much that God. Sets things right. Well, if you're going to do it, God, why don't you do it? Set things right. In August Wilson's wonderful play, Ma Rainey, There is a scene in which some African-American jazz musicians are in a recording studio in the 1930s. They are rehearsing to record with the great blues singer Ma Rainey. And as they rehearse, they tell stories and they, they joke. And as they are telling stories, one of them begins to tell a story about a relative of his who is a minister in South Georgia. His sister in Atlanta became ill, and so he caught the train from South Georgia to Atlanta. It stopped in a little town south of Macon to take on coal and water, and this minister got off the train to use the restroom. He was promptly told he could not use the restroom in the station, that the outhouse in the backyard was for him. He went out to the outhouse, but by the time he got back to the platform, the train had left him in this little south georgia village all alone across the tracks he saw a group of young tough whites looking at him suspiciously and not wanting any trouble he simply started walking down the tracks toward atlanta but they followed him they surrounded him what are you doing here boy i'm a minister he said he showed them his bible and his cross my sister in Atlanta is sick. I'm trying to go to see her, and the train has left me here. Can you dance, boy? Let's see you dance, they said. One of them took out a revolver and began firing bullets at his feet. Come on, boy, let's dance. And at that point, the musician telling the story said to the others, Can you believe that they did that? He was a man of God. Can you believe They did that. To which one of the other musicians said, what I can't believe is that God let them do it. If he was a man of God, why didn't God strike down them crackers right there? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And it is this week of all weeks that we remember that God's power in the world is not like our power God's justice in the world is not even like our justice God comes not as a warrior but as a suffering servant God comes not with a sword but with a cross God comes not with vengeance but as a gardener and a lamplighter a bruised reed he will not break a dimly burning wick He will not quench. He comes and joins with us in the deepest places of our suffering and brokenness. Several springs ago, one of my former students came by to see me at the seminary. We sat in my office and had a cup of coffee. And then she said, I've got a secret. I said, What? She said, I'm pregnant. I thought this was wonderful. They had a seven-year-old daughter and had been trying for years to have a second child, but had been unable to do so. And now she was telling me at last she was pregnant. There are two things that we know about our baby, she said. He is a boy and he has Down syndrome. A bruised reed, a dimly burning wick. How are you feeling about this, I said. At first, we were overwhelmed, she said, but gradually we are realizing that with God's help, we can do this. That Christmas, I received their Christmas letter, and in it, she wrote, After nine long months of unmitigated discomfort at four in the morning on August 18th, the magic moment had come. At last, at 10.55 a.m., Timothy Andrew took his first breath and let out a hearty yell. He was whisked off to neonatal intensive care, where he spent the next three days before coming home. He's strong, alert, and beautiful. He has the sweetest disposition. He shatters daily our images of handicapped and special needs. He may need special help, but already he is no slouch in giving us special love. We are blessed. Katie, that's their eight-year-old daughter, is Tim's champion. Hearing our concerns about how well Tim might be accepted by the other kids, Kate informed the kids on our block, my brother has Down syndrome and everybody's going to play with him or else. One evening, we overheard her talking to Tim. I'm so glad you're here, Timothy. I'll always love you. I'll never leave you. I'll always be nearby. And then she wrote, Christ came to identify with us especially those most in need, we know miraculous blessings firsthand. God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.